0: And so we might say, this is an experience
1: of the void.
0: You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore the borderlands of digital media, technology, and memes. Today, we're thrilled to welcome back friend of the show and author of the newly released book, The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, The Politics of Nostalgia, Grafton Tanner. Tanner explains how nostalgia is the emotion of our time, He takes us from its roots as an illness that was considered a cause of death to how nostalgic feelings are influenced by climate change and species extinction. From endless sequels and franchises to early pandemic nostalgia, Tanner shares how we can be more mindful arbiters of our nostalgic moment. A few housekeeping notes ahead of our conversation with Grafton. We're bringing New York City's Festival of Memes back to Caveat on Wednesday, October 27th at 7 o'clock Eastern Time for a special Halloween edition of the Meme in the Moment Festival. Join Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, NBC's Callan Rosenblatt, Insider's Kat Tenbarge, The Verge's McKenna Kelly, Insider's Rachel E. Greenspan, freelance culture writer Moises Mendez II, cultural strategist Matt Klein, memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen and author of the Palmer Hotel, Rick Polis, live in person, underground and fully vaccinated. Tickets are available now at caveat.nyc or at digitalvoid.media. One editorial note before we begin. There's a section of this conversation where we discuss the monsters. In reality, we mean the Adams family. <laughs>
1: I think it's really good to be speaking to you at this moment because I think your book hits at the right moment, which I'm assuming you're, you've been keeping track of. The timeliness of your book happens within the timelessness of our culture. <laughs> so mm. that is, it, it happens to be very important. There's parts of your book that hit differently because of the time in which we're reading it. And I, I think there's a couple things that Josh and I would love to speak to you about within this book, because one, the book is expansive. I mean, you covered a lot in here. And so it, the, the coverage of a history of nostalgia mixed with their current criticism of nostalgia capitalism, and nostalgia corporatism, can't be better analyzed at any given time. I mean, last time we spoke, a president that really uh, fomented a, a nostalgia crisis was still in office. We were mid pandemic and now we are what many people want to assume is post-pandemic, and we're on to a new president, but we are now in a period of time of trying to get a grip on where we actually are in time. This is going to be an overall entry point here, but what
2: what made you want to cover the entirety of Nostalgia? Well, first off, thanks for having me uh, back to to talk about this stuff. You know, I've been writing about Nostalgia kind of peripherally for several years. It was never really a central focus in the the work that I've done, and I wanted to dedicate an entire book to trying to figure out what it is because I think that it's a word that gets thrown around a lot uh, by different folks, different people. Some things are completely kind of batted away and disregarded as mere nostalgia, so we just need to forget about that. Or, oh, I'm just so nostalgic for the 1950s every time I watch *Rubble* Without a Cause – or American graffiti um uh oh Trump induced nostalgia in his campaign for twenty sixteen or things like this and 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 you know we're all everyone's kind of correct when they use that term in that way, but I wanted to kind of figure out where the word comes from, what exactly it means, and if there really is a lot of it today or is or we you know everyone says i mean the, the thing I've heard over and over again um in the um, doing interviews leading up to this book, is is people will tell me, well, yeah, there's just nostalgia everywhere. Nostalgia is everywhere, and I I wanted to know is that true? Is, is are we more nostalgic, you know, now than at other periods in history? And let's say we are, um, and is is it a good thing to have nostalgia? And what is it? If it's a human emotion, then it, then we have to figure out what to do with it, right? Like anger, we can't just get rid of anger. So we have to figure out how to manage it in some way. Well, if nostalgia is an emotion, then we have to figure out what we're going to do with it so that we don't have situations like Donald Trump 2016, you know, uh, what have you. When I was sketching out the book, I knew I wanted to hit on a lot of different topics as like case studies for nostalgia, anything that was like sort of, you know, um, a major issue of our time and... It was funny because each thing that I kind of looked into had some connection back to this emotion. And so that was sort of the starting point. That's kind of, you know, where it all came from, I I guess.
1: To be very honest, I had no idea of its historical representation in in history. If you could just talk a little bit for people who are going to buy your book about how you would, how you found all that research about it being not only an emotion or categorized in her feelings, but also a cause of death, which was like. If, what very fascinating to me, like historically on records, mm. where did you go to find all that information? What was your research process?
2: There are a number of uh, nostalgia scholars who have been doing work for years. Um, and it, it's crazy. The, you know there's so much research on nostalgia that is so hard to find because books are out of print. And, and they're in these random journals in the bottom of a library somewhere. And I had, I didn't get the chance to do any deep archival work, but um, I had to do a lot of hunting. It's almost like this curse. Like if you study nostalgia, your work will eventually disappear. There's a lot of good work being done and, and a lot of work has been done trying to chart the history of nostalgia. So I have to kind of give it up to... Scholars like John Starobinsky from the middle of the last century and Fred Davis, who wrote Yearning for Yesterday in the late 1970s. Of course, Svetlana Boehm wrote The Future of Nostalgia, which is like, in my book, probably the most influential book on nostalgia. We get a lot of our, the way that we talk about nostalgia, we get from that book uh, and that she wrote it in like the late 90s. It came out in 2000. Um, and and then more recently, you have books like Thomas Dodman's book, uh, What Nostalgia Was, which Dodman is a historian, excellent historian, deep diving into these French archives, trying to trace back the um, the history of nostalgia to its origin point as a disease, uh, which is what it was originally considered. The, nostalgia is an interesting emotion, and I'll just go ahead and say that I define it as an emotion. You may define it differently. Some people see it as just a marketing tactic, but I think that in marketing, it's still an emotion. It's just an emotion used by marketing, just like how Tucker Carlson uses anger to sell his products, which is his show. Um, You've got Disney that uses nostalgia to sell its movies. So nostalgia to me is an emotion, but unlike a lot of these other emotions that we're familiar with, something like anger, sadness, what have you, Um, The word nostalgia doesn't really show up until the late 1680s, and it shows up as a disease. It's medicalized. It's not thought of as an emotion. Over time, we can get into this, uh, but over time, it sort of drifted from this disease to something that's not quite a disease that most people would probably think is an emotion today. For a little while, for about 150 years or so, maybe not even that long, maybe maybe between 100 and 150 years. Um, we've got some death certificates from soldiers, and in particularly in, in France, um, and their cause of death is that is listed as nostalgia. So it, it worried physicians for a while, um, this thing. and But over time, it became demedicalized, and we don't think of it as a disease anymore. But some of the, I would say, like the pathological traces still kind of persist. I think that's one of the reasons why we, tend to be a bit skeptical of it.
1: That was a big learning experience for me. And I do understand where you're coming from with the where we could use those definitions because in our current context, I think a lot of our references to it are detached from its historical references, which is, again, kind of proves the point of your book. And so it's this understanding of the the word nostalgia and the, the combination of words that make up nostalgia but i also found it interesting that like it wasn't new like nostalgia was just the name given to some sort of homesickness or desire to be happy to be back i have to agree with you i think nostalgia is very much an emotion and i i agree in terms of marketers have to use emotion to to make it work uh, i'm fortunate to be teaching like an advertising aesthetics course right now and so this book has become is quite quite handy knowing how our current era filled with nostalgia is part of this is explaining how ads themselves do this work because it has to play to your emotions and nostalgia itself fulfills a gap of an imagined past and i do like your early use in the text about referencing uh Thomas More's Utopia, and I use that a lot because Utopia and dystopia are imagined spaces; they do not exist. You know, people people like to use the term. oh, It's utopian or it's dystopian. There's these words that we're not sure how to ne- navigate or negotiate, and so this this the opening of this does a really good job for it. And so I just want to start with one of the parts that affected me early on in here was your story about um, the mall. You know, the mall spaces; these a bit these these structural memories of history that. I think is a shared experience for a lot of people within a very specific set of generations that may or may not be shared in the future. And one of your stories that I think affected me in a way that was like the merge of both commercialism and crisis at the same space is your story about the shooter outside the mall. What an interesting metaphor of commercial monetary space and the time in which we live, which is like the fear of the possibility of danger. How do you think people will think about malls as they start becoming these these empty vessels of memory? Like, is it just going to be always be romantic going forward rather than the dangerous that you mentioned in the book? And can you share the story of uh, as
0: well to give greater context to the audience?
2: I grew up with a local mall and uh, would go a lot. I went when I was much younger. And by the time I was probably in high school, the mall had changed some hands and ownership. It it didn't really go into disrepair necessarily, but it wasn't what it was. I mean, the, my local mall was this booming, I mean, booming, I was in kind of in a small ish town. So booming for us, um, uh, place with all these stores and whatnot and everybody was going and hanging out. It was just such a space, you know, and I don't, to my recollection, I can't quite remember many like moments of sheer terror, except for the one that, um, I write about in the book in which, I was probably uh, maybe like late elementary school, middle school, or something. And I was with my mom in the mall doing something. And on the lower level of this indoor mall, and uh, suddenly we started hearing gunshots. And a, a police sort of appeared, a police person appeared at the second level, told everybody to get down. Um, people were suddenly panicking, running down the escalator. Sp- almost spilling over the sides of the escalator, like they're just going to fall a whole story or something. And, you know, my mom y- yanks me like a shepherd grabbing a sheep, you know, like yanks me into, uh, into like a, a store. I think it was like a wet seal or something. So we may be able to figure out exactly what time period, maybe like two thousand, you know, two or something. Um, and we get in there and inside the store, it's like nothing had happened. No one had heard the shots, you know, and Everyone was just kind of like shopping. Maybe they heard them and didn't care. I doubt it. But um, and we were just in there kind of like huddling among the rows of the clothes, watching people kind of like run out of the mall in this like scary moment. And my my mom tried to ask uh, the person working like, is there, a, is there a back exit here? You know. And, and the person working is like walking by with, you know, clothes stacked up in their hands or whatever. They're just trying to work. They're like, I don't know if there's a back exit. Don't ask me, you know. And so we were just kind of stuck in this, in this store, um, watching while this happened and, and sort of transfixed at people running out, running, you know, running by, just looking out the exit of the store. And somebody came up at some point and kind of broke us from our stupor and was like, Hey, can I grab those pants behind you or whatever? And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm still in a mall, you know, like I'm not, I'm not at war. I'm at the mall. And. I, you know, that experience is, is formative to me because uh, I I have a bit of nostalgia for my local mall, too. And I think I think many people do. And of course, I also keep that memory sort of side by side to know, like, you know, that was a, a freak moment. Like, just like if you were in a movie theater and endured like an active shooter situation, like you could still be nostalgic for movie theaters and know that you've gone through a really terrible thing at the same time. At the same time but it sort of proves the point that um marco was writing about in his book Nonplaces in the 1990s which is that you know a mall is a kind of non-place even though it was a place where plenty of people congregated it still was like a, a corporate space um and uh but non-places he says are also places of like terrorism and violence because people tend to kind of come and go and and move through it they don't they're almost like anonymous or what have you so yeah, that's
0: that's my mall story. What's underlying all of this is this sense of neoliberal capitalism as a nostalgia machine, which you heavily discuss in your book. It's it's its most dominant theme. It's how things vanish from the physical space of a shopping mall to healthcare, uh marginalized populations are disappearing from sight, species are vanishing. Can you uh briefly review neoliberal capitalism as a nostalgia machine so then we can look deeper into what's happening with the climate and the grief associated with it?
2: That is a big question, but I'll I'll tell you um the I you're referring to the the conclusion of the book in which I talk about um uh briefly talk about what happened under Pinochet in Chile in the 1970s um widespread disappearing of in Pinochet's eyes, dissidents and activists. Um, and I speak a little bit about the, the, the loved ones who are left behind who um, continue and ha- continued after Pinochet. And then up until this documentary that I talk about called nostalgia for the light, which came out in like 2011 about some of the uh, quote mothers and grandmothers of the disappeared and other loved ones who, um, search in particular the Atacama Desert where Pinochet's people said they buried the dissidents uh, they buried the remains there and, and the idea is that if we go to the desert and we dig around long enough we may find our family who are in the desert um, and um, there was a heavily emotionally charged kind of uh, searching that happens and and Grief is one of those emotions. You have to have some kind of hope, or else you would give up. Um, and and there's there is a dose of nostalgia there, a, a yearning to sort of be reunited, even if even if the reuniting is just you with the remains of of a loved one. There's some kind of closure there. Um, and so I write a little bit about that at the end of the book, as as a way to think about nostalgia a little bit differently, as something that might. Uh, drive people to search for answers that are not provided through the so-called official means, um, especially the ones that are um, official and come down from above from a uh, uh, a regime, an administration, a power that is extremely uh, destructive and hurts and kills a lot of people. And p- one, <laughs> that power, in a sense, isn't just Chile, it's it's neoliberalism, which uh, doesn't just come out of the ground. It doesn't come down from the sky. It's not something that everybody wakes up and and like uh, it accidentally happens. Uh, capitalism has to sustain itself through an enormous force of will. It, it takes a you know it, it takes a lot of work for it to um, run every single day, um, and and for profits to be made and for you know money to get moved around and financial capitalism to exist it takes a lot of work and some of that work is um the business of trying to get rid of anything that's going to challenge neoliberal capitalism as an ideology or i might add point it out as an ideology i think it's george monbiot who says that neoliberalism is like the invisible ideology or something you know um and if you've done some of this reading and and talked to folks about neoliberalism you know that it's just it isn't really very invisible, but there's a lot of work done to keep it invisible. There's a lot of work done to keep billionaires' names out of people's mouths you know we don't you know um and so to do that it it means uh not just not just um burying dissidents in the desert um or 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 um taking them up over the Pacific Ocean and dropping them out in the middle of the water where they cannot be found um uh, but also uh doing certain things to the to the environment uh so that um the 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 factories of the world and data centers of tech capitalism can be built and thing and business can happen um so I think that that uh nostalgia being so widespread today is a direct result of a world uh in which for neoliberal capitalism to exist, things have to disappear and they have to disappear often.
1: One of the things we battle with in our current context, especially I would even say at the end of this Afghanistan war is kind of like our acknowledgement. You know, you just mentioned the idea of keeping things invisible or keeping the words out of people's mouths is, is work. It's an intense amount of work. And it's done by not just one corporation or one specific political forefront, but really just the overwhelming sense of the the thumb of capitalism in general. And at the end of the Afghanistan war, it's kind of like it brings to the forefront what what is very visibly the end of empire. You know, we're, we're watching, we've watched the post-capitalism construct collapse from the post-2008 crisis. I mean, it arguably we are sitting in the decline of capitalism, but it takes, it's kind of like the idea of how long does that take? Who knows, but it's it's at the end. And now at the end of empire, you're actually watching not just the 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 full reveal of the American enterprise or the American cultural warehouse, sort sort of shutting down or becoming an empty mall in general, but you're also watching uh, an inability to replace it with anything. You know, so it's kind of like there's no space for a cultural uh, jump forward. It's kind of just that's all that's left is just let's let's focus on what existed and what makes it great. And you actually say at one point. Uh, a quote that I really like, which is like, when people are nostalgic for the 1980s, they're not they're not actually interested in the 1980s, but rather they're yearning for the the sounds or the the looks or the characters' behavior or communication. And I I like that a lot because it's almost like that's really where things are both we're losing a, a, a visual present of structure, but at the same time fulfilling it with an intangible, which is just like a false memory. And so. How long does that last before that becomes visible regardless? Like we can't sustain uh, the the ability to to make this not visible forever. I mean, this is how long does capital and neoliberal structures have to make things not filled with the reveal that nothing actually
2: exists? I ask myself that question when I think about the the um, the entertainment industries and um, and rebooting and um, intellectual property films like Space Jam or the, the, the you know, the remake, right. you know, yeah. Or the sequel, Space Jam, the sequel. I don't know.
0: <laughs> the Big Chungus
2: sequel. Yeah. 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 Or, um, what's, what's another one? Like, yeah. You know, um, the Munsters remake <laughs> or something, you know, uh, you know, I asked myself that with inter- with, in terms of entertainment and, and media corporations, cause it isn't that people just, don't have ideas anymore or something or they've run out of all of them it's like some exhaustion of ideas it's not true at all um it's it's a way to kind of strip mine the past and and repackage it for uh the present and at a certain point you do well you would think you would run out of stuff to repackage like you know well once you've rebooted the monsters and the monsters have been rebooted but here's the thing the Munsters were on the, I, I, this is my example. I don't, I, you know, who cares about the Munsters? But here's my example. Um, the, uh, the Munsters came on like in the 1960s or something. And then it was rebooted in the 1970s. And then there was like a, like a movie made, or maybe a movie that was made in the 1970s. It was rebooted in the late 1980s. The reboot went on longer than the original series. There was a movie at maybe in the 90s. And then there was a movie or a reboot or something like in 2012. And so uh, if you just look back, it seems it's it's a process. It's not like, you know, this is the second time around for the Munsters. This is like the sixth time around, the fifth time around. And so you would think they would kind of it it would run out and exhaust itself. But, you know, it'll keep, you know, the, the entertainment industry, at least, will keep dipping back into the same well over and over again. And so in terms of larger structures of capitalism, it's hard to say because, uh, just when it seems like collective action and 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 organizations are really kind of like putting their foot on the neck of capitalism um, somebody somewhere is able to dig up something that's like already been tried and presented as being brand new and suddenly it's like we're all back to working again um, so it it's really hard to say i I do think that one thing you can't wind back our our climate loops uh, and those are pretty locked in and and um that's that's a troubling that's a troubling future and something that can't be rebooted is the climate
0: yeah uh when i was reading the book i was thinking about how when this type of nostalgia for a return to the climate is pushed to its cybernetic extreme we have to exercise caution, right? Because uh, the national socialists took blood and soil to be very serious, right? It's a connection to blood and heritage, but also to soil, return to the land. So how do you practice this type of nostalgia for a a symbiotic environment in which humans and nature can coexist without ending up in a space of eco-fascism?
2: I write in the book about how uh, today, in 2021, uh, most conservatives either deny, in in America, most conservatives either deny uh, the existence of global warming, uh, or they don't talk about it, you know, because of certain interests. Um, But that, you know, you could have a future in which they do start to talk about it, but they talk about it in the language of austerity, and they talk about, you know cutting taxes on the, on the rich or or cutting certain public services and public programs, privatizing everything, whatever is left in the United States that hasn't been hollowed out and turned into an empty shell and sold off to a contractor, uh, in the name of trying to like, you know, stop a a runaway global warming at that point, it'll probably be too late, but, uh, yeah, that's a future that's kind of frightening and strange is to think about one in which, um, the, uh, you know, reactionary right wing start to talk seriously about climate change, but in a way that's very, very harmful, not just to human beings, but to the interactants on the planet and the planet itself. Um, There could, (laughs) there probably would be a homeland blood and soil nostalgia. Any chance they get to do that, they'll do it. But, uh, um, and that, that would be frightening. And, you know, I I say it in the book, in situations like that, and we may not have very long to wait for that. I mean, we do have a presidential election in not that long, a few years. It'll be cycling up again or whatever, and you'll have a right-wing person who will come out, and they will probably use several emotions to speak to the public. One of those will probably be nostalgia for some kind of a past. It could be imagined, completely fabricated, half-fabricated, what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, the public has to kind of stop and ask itself, um, you know, what's going on here? Because for the people who are being elected into, in political office, they know exactly what's going on. They know how to induce or, you know, at least spread certain emotions, um, in, in the public or at least, or at least try to. And, um, the idea that the public is just some like inert mass that just is suddenly going to, you know, take the emotional contagion. It's ridiculous. I I think that I think that people have a lot of power to push back um, against especially these demagogue type figures that are using nostalgia to police homelands and whatever uh, to push back and 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 say, like, you know, wait a minute, like, uh, you know, healthy skepticism here. I'm not going to necessarily just totally believe that I need a little bit more evidence here of what you're talking about. Um, But it's hard to do that when the political discourse is so low, especially when it comes to like infotainment media um, and how it's talked about. So it's 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 a difficult hill to climb.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate your optimism, though. I mean, that's like I really do. There's there's a constant discourse about saying about how we reach exhaustion in this type of era where we've been basically it's a tumultuous time that just keeps repeating over and over again to the point where when a, when a heavy issue, like what we just discussed comes up, the pushback becomes potentially less because it's just a feeling of like helplessness. But that the, I think you're right. I think when it does come down to it, I think the, the recent history is in the, 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 the past that is, that has actually occurred, I think it's f- close enough in our memory. There's always a discussion that you get enough generations distant from an event and you you forget the outcomes. And I think that's why history uh, you say is like it, what do they say? It doesn't repeat, but it, it has uh, it rhymes, you know, like it's kind of like history has this, this effect of doing that over and over again. But I, I do like that you use the way, the way you phrase that because there will be a time where we're going to have to confront this again. A lot of your book for, comes up with a lot of the mediated stuff that Josh and I study or that we've been studying since we've done our new media work. And I just want to talk to you about two two things that kind of talk about material history in that sense. And one is the concept of um, you kind of breach media archaeology at one point in here where you talk about um, the material aspects of watching on VHS or or when you actually had a cassette player long after cassettes had kind of reached their peak. And I, I see very often people kind of like creating some sort of object fetishisms towards these things in our present. Can you talk a little bit about um, what kind of, we talked about grief before, but what kind of comfort you believe that that brings people? Or is that comfort or is it commodity fetishism? Like, does it have a real substantial feelings to that?
2: There's been some work on what's called media nostalgia and mediated nostalgia. Uh, Manuel Menke is an uh, excellent scholar of media nostalgia. And then you've got uh, Ryan Lazardi, who's in work on mediated nostalgia. The difference between the two is that media nostalgia is a nostalgia for certain specific kinds of media, like a nostalgia for VHS tapes or a nostalgia for um, vinyl records. Mediated nostalgia would be nostalgia that happens to be mediated through um, the uh, those, um, those means or whatever. So it, it's sort of like uh, asking yourself, Whether if I watch something um, or I'll do an example from the book, I write a little bit about the 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 cassette tape that my uh, grandmother gave me when I was younger Was actually the first piece of recorded music I owned, which was Daft Punk's Discovery, which is the greatest album ever, of course. But um, so listening to that, uh, the question is, am I just nostalgic for cassette tapes because it's a cassette tape? Or am I nostalgic for, um, you know, something older in the past that's just mediated through that tape, like, you know, an album that I think it came out in 2001 is like 20 years old at this point. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think that, that there's much of a difference. I do think that both of those kind of work at the same time, media and mediated nostalgia. And I think it's because of that interplay. That's the reason why people tend to attach themselves to certain like you know, nostalgic media objects, whether it is like my cassette tape or it's, um, you know, old horror movie VHS tapes or it's vinyl records or what have you. Um, And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are things that are like blatant commodities as kitsch as can be that people still like use and hold on to to somehow like like buoy them through rough, terrible periods in their own lives and uh, sometimes these things are very private, you know sometimes they they migrate with the person um, sometimes they have no meaning whatsoever. It could be a family heirloom, even this was being written about by by Proust back way back in the day these these objects uh that sort of contain the memories kind of hidden within them. And it's only kind of by chance that one is able to uh, either find that thing or be able to make that thing work and release that that strange, euphoric, nostalgic feeling. Um, for me, you know, I've had that that Daft Punk cassette for most of my life, you know, at least since I was younger. And it's um, it's been this, uh, I mean, at this point, it's a tradition halloween rolls around and i pop it on and i listen to it and it to me it's the best way to listen to the album i try to listen to it on cd it's just not the same it's the same thing with certain like 80s horror movies i think that that there are some films that are meant to be watched collectively in a theater and then there are some that are meant to be watched on old grainy vhs because it's almost like that is that that medium was uh, like they knew it was going to be watched on that and so aesthetically the decisions made within the film sort of you know, align with it or something. Maybe I'm stretching here, but um, so yeah. I mean, it is it is a fact that we can have something passed down from generation to generation, a ring or something that means a lot, or it can be something that we actually bought. And and sometimes uh, those things can get the family heirloom or the the media we we bought can get easily fetishized and sold back to us. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Google nostalgia marketing 2021 so much that that you find um, is a bunch of ad agencies and, and marketing agencies talking about how you need to play up the nostalgia for like tapes and vinyl records the thing is they were doing this 10 years ago too it's the strangest thing so yeah i hope that kind of answers a little bit of both you know
1: yeah it does yeah And no, it's true it's this is this is a marketing plan that's well well tuned i think you mentioned this multiple times in in the book which is kind of like this pre-9/11 period where we kind of had this this um analog life like this this pretty much is offline life and i think this tells me a lot about how we want to make media today and it isn't just about the ip hellhole that we're kind of in which you mentioned earlier but it's also about like escaping from a time that doesn't reference our own time you mentioned several shows in this in the book that don't encounter the period. So you mentioned Mad Men encounters the, the Kennedy assassination, and the Andy Griffith Show doesn't encounter Vietnam. Like mm. it's like certain pieces of media kind of do or don't. And yeah. I was thinking about shows today, and I was thinking about like watching a show like Why the Why the Last Man, which is an incredible graphic novel, but it. I don't know if I want to watch, or I get a little stressed out watching a show about a pandemic during a pandemic, I think it's playing a, a bunch into the way that we want to see an analog life. It isn't just the tech, the social media, the materialism, but also the heavy handedness of actually seeing a, a threat in real life. I, I just love to know some of the thoughts on like, what, what do you think of media in the future looking back at our current nostalgia in our present?
2: I think about that a lot because cause I had the same thought, you know, I'm, I was seeing, um, I mean, just go back and look at like, uh, um, uh, the first two months of the pandemic, early 2020, um, posts online or, or video specials or what have you, you know, the aesthetic is, is really, uh, cringy to look at. Cause it's just so recent, you know, and You know, but at the same time, it only took a few months for people to start to be nostalgic for the early parts of of lockdown because uh, they finally got to like not go in and see that terrible person they work with or they got to take some walks or something or they took up, you know, um, building furniture or, or what have you, you know, and it wasn't the case. That wasn't the case for for loads of people that was. You know, those same people who were taking up furniture as a hobby also had folks who died or had lost jobs, you know, and so uh we have to kind of move into the future, of course, knowing both sides of the coin. It tends to be really stressful and, and even offensive to, to people uh to to see some other people making nostalgic a period that we know to be really bad. And so when that started to happen, you had folks online writing about like these people on TikTok or nostalgic for the pandemic and yeah that's really frustrating of course you know but sometimes that's the only way that people can make sense of really terrible times is by casting this warm glow on it and saying like well you know that was the time that I learned how to make bread or that's the time that I finally started exercising or or what have you you know um because otherwise it could be really difficult to move on from terrible things that take sometimes years and years to move on and I think we're going to see this collectively um In the West, as the pandemic probably becomes endemic, I don't think there's ever going to be like an end. It's probably just going to become something that's like influenza. Um, And as that happens, trying to like recover from this time, you're going to see people making nostalgic content about the pandemic. It's going to be really weird. Um, It's going to be uh, some people, it'll it'll be an attempt to try to like move forward from the grief capitalism will come in and commodify it and it'll be a it'll be sort of this uh this this corporate thing at that point then the 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 work really begins because now like everything that happens there's this tension between trying to remember a way that's like kind of ethically good um and so now we have to do this so we'll be having this fight the rest of our lives just as we've been doing it with 9-11 you know we had the 20 20th anniversary of 9-11 and And never forget, never forget, you know, and Roy Scranton, God love him. He tweeted, uh, he just said, forget what? Or something like this. And I remember thinking like, yes, you know, exactly. Uh, there will be this battle that we have to do with these major things. And unfortunately we live in a time in which crises just concatenate and we're going to be doing it with Trump. We're going to be doing it with the pandemic. It'll be a lot of work.
0: We saw it during Trump's presidency, the rehabilitation of the public image of George W. Bush. Well, at least Bush wasn't this bad, right? And I think that you can feel a certain sympathy, not for the rehabilitation of Bush, but just for maybe those TikTokers who were... Nostalgic for the early stage pandemic days, because you ask in the final section of your book about the right to nostalgia, and and you deeply discuss this. And I love that you write, nostalgia is an unavoidable reaction to the traumas of the modern world. So what does it mean for people to feel nostalgic eight months into the pandemic? for the most early days of the pandemic, when they're looking at and harboring feelings of structure and bread breaking. And what does that say as there are that while there's civil unrest in the streets and while there's not necessarily hope of a vaccine for another six months and unemployment benefits are maybe not necessarily guaranteed and we're seeing a diminishing of the social safety net. I'm curious if this is a battle we're going to be faced with our whole life how do we look at i I think you called it radical nostalgia in in your last book the circle of the snake but um how do we kind of take back nostalgia as an instrument of control to help become more resilient to this and realize that this might just be the best it'll ever be like today is horrible but this might be it (laughs) like this is a high point is that grim
2: I'm about to make uh, a reference to The Office, but one one of them says like, "How do?" And this probably not from The Office. It probably has to do with something else. But they say, uh, "Why is it that you never know that you're in the good old days until they're like long gone, until they're past, or whatever?" And that's a really weird thing because like 2020, 2021, most days living in the world doesn't they don't really feel much like the good old days, and yet it's like human emotion is weirdly all about trying to make something into the good old days, even when they aren't so good. Um, but you know, I mean, is any, would anybody be nostalgic for, um, a novel virus killing a bunch of people? No, not necessarily. Would people be nostalgic for, um, uh, spending more time with their families or like students being able to, Get a second round with their with their families moving back out away from college because my students always told me you know they they got many of them were like reconnected with their with their like siblings and parents and guardians uh, during the during the virtual days of lockdown because they moved back home or something you know Um, those are the things that people are nostalgic for even though it's scary outside and again that nostalgic oftentimes is very very privileged because not everybody could do that and like I said when. It's all like, you know, late night board games and, and learning how to cook bread until COVID shows up at your doorstep and somebody dies. And then it's like really bad, right? Or, you know, it's all like, you know, virtual lockdown, taking long walks until George Floyd is murdered. And then it's like people move to the streets and, and um in in protest and in solidarity. Um, but even that, there there is likely a, a nostalgia for Uh, the 2020 protests for the movement for black lives, simply not because of what happened, but because of the fact that you had a group of people coming together, feeling like that they could in as a collective do what Naomi Klein says, which is like dream in public and try to like affect change in this very anti-democratic time that we, we live in. Uh, And so nobody would yearn for the, the conditions that would lead to uh, a horrendous uh, event that would then lead to protest. But the idea that like there could be a nostalgia for protests, I think is very, very like uh, strong and in fact healthy. And one of the emotions that we can use um, as we continue to collectively fight for things like, you know, the abolishing of student debt or as we continue to fight for uh, for um, abolishing the police force or um, to try to like have some kind of gender equity in this world. Um, And so I, I, with nostalgia, as with any emotion, we have to think about like the, the feeling and it itself, and also think about its object, because if we don't do that, then we get really weird when people are nostalgic for like George W. Bush, which, you know, (laughs) I lived during that time. (laughs) Okay. And so when people are nostalgic for that, I have to kind of eat my own words and think like, okay, is this a way that they have to kind of is this a way, is this a coping mechanism for them to deal with Trump? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there's my nuance. And on the other end, I have to say like, yo, the man, Bush, uh, destroyed the world.
0: It's really grim. Um, I appreciate the nuance. There's, there's one more layer. And then I know Jamie wants to get into Tanner Wave, but we, we, haven't, div- we haven't taken a dive into um, really uh, what happens to time. And you have and you have a subheading in your book uh, you called the time called Time's Handkerchief. And you write that the international standardization of time in the nineteenth century solidified what used to be a more flexible understanding. Time became something you measured, spent, and saved. Even though the hours repeated daily, time itself marched forward, marked by advances in science and technology, the evidence of progress for many. We began moving in inexor- inexorably towards something and away from something else. And you, in your analysis of what happened uh, during the earliest days of quarantine, during the virtual days of quarantine, uh, you mentioned the privilege associated with being able to spend time with family and not having to go out to work and, or at least work in person. But can you explain in your... From your perspective, how you saw the flattening of time and and the emergence or the acceleration of of nostalgia products, be it um, fascism or the conspiracism of Q and how you saw nostalgia utilized more heavily uh, during this time and how people were easily lured into
2: it. Well, after any major crisis, you're going to have, whether it's just to your own life or collectively large groups of people, you're going to have uh, the emotion of nostalgia show up. That's not even to say, like, that's not even considering the fact that, like, people are going to be nostalgic after, you know, in in the case of COVID, people getting sick, becoming compromised, perhaps dying uh, so, um, even the, even the people who aren't directly affected in that way are still feeling nostalgic because, uh, suddenly things were one way they've changed drastically. It's actually not good. It's very scary. It's very unknown building the plane as you fly it. So nostalgia is going to be one of those, um, those emotions that, that shows up along with other ones, like maybe anger or hope to some extent, but it's kind of like replaced a little bit by fear, you know, um, but, uh, and so, and then, you know, you have, you have things like the, you know, all these sporting events getting canceled when, when lockdown started and, and nobody being able to like create new content, which is weird. And like in the, um, the, uh, the kind of media capitalism that we're in, where it's just endlessly churning out content. And when that all kind of like slows down to a halt. Um, then you're playing reruns and that's why they're, I don't know if it's still up, but CBS brought back their like late, like their Sunday night movie with all the retro fond, very much an old thing they used to do. Um, and uh, I watched a lot of really old, weird sports on ESPN because there wasn't anything to show. Um, and so, so of course, you know, capitalism steps in and here's some more nostalgia to stoke the, or man, maybe even manipulate the nostalgia that you are already feeling in this time. Um, And I will say, collectively and individually in the body, but collectively too, when an emotion like nostalgia or any emotion, uh, fear, anger, is propagated intensely around the clock for a period of time, it leaves a trace behind in ourselves, in the culture, and so that when you move forward, a lot of times what you're nostalgic for is the feeling of nostalgia that was felt at that moment. That's why the 1980s uh, we uh, you know the 1980s were nostalgic for the 1950s and what we're nostalgic for is for how the 1980s thought of itself in relation to the 1950s, a, sort of a reframing of this previous period. Um, so what we kind of collectively remember as a culture, if it's heavily influenced by these nostalgic feelings, what we collectively remember is how we're remembered in the future. And that's why it's so strange to think about a time period as the last five to 10 years when um, I would argue that there is a lot of nostalgic uh, discourses and content out there. Uh, how one would make sense of the time period later on and what they would really yearn for. And what they would probably yearn for, again, is the nostalgic feelings of the 2010s, not necessarily the 2010s themselves. Um Uh, And yet those of us who live through them, just like with George W. Bush, have to kind of constantly like keep people in check so that those emotions don't just suddenly lead a person to think that maybe Bush was super great or Trump was super great or the pandemic wasn't that bad or something. So there has to be some kind of like historical checking that happens um, while understanding that that people are emotional creatures and they uh, sometimes it can get really weird,
0: and the weirdness we saw, right? Because everything felt like it was flattened. Like we were heading toward that space where um, the digital flattened everything into its binary. But through that mandate, we saw the co- like conspiracies of everything. We saw um, mysteries being solved or attempted to be solved by like true crime sleuths on TikTok more recently. And and so it, it's strange to see how beginning with uh the 19th century we had we, th- we had this progress of moving towards something but now with the repository of everything it's almost like we're connecting all of time at once and we're stuck in in that s- nostalgic circle that you wrote about
2: and speaking about that you know uh i think that it's it's a shift from what would be considered like a a, a disciplinary model of time and work which is like working at, working uh, you know, within the clock and waiting for five o'clock to hit, and the whistle blows, and then we go home—very Fred Flintstone kind of situation—to um, to suddenly finding ourselves in the in the digital age, but more specifically in like the pandemic age and the the era of Zoom, finding that uh, it doesn't feel much like that we're having to like work. Towards a clock, and then in fact it doesn't really feel like that there is any clock at all. And that could feel very liberating, but in fact, it's that you're always on the clock. You don't you don't have to have uh, an eight to five workday if you're working all the time. Um and I think many people saw that when they went virtual um in the pandemic, they they discovered that uh that without having to go somewhere, that their overseers expected them to always be working. Um I do think you know, the, the rise in conspiracies and Q and, and things like that, you know, I think that has a lot to do with the um in particular, I think the the feeling of of utter strangeness that the pandemic gave many people, um, of something like this happening is is it's just a wild thing. It's a wild thing to think of that in you know, the twenty first century human beings can still be leveled by a virus. And that the CDC even, which is this institution that tells us great things and what we need to do and whatnot, they themselves are also kind of behind the eight ball. Um, You take that with an already skepticism under Trump and him sort of being a a conspiracy mill and have certain people be online scrolling on uh, on these technologies that literally just commodify communication just so advertisers can make more money. That's a recipe for conspiracy.
1: Before I ask you the last question, I, I agree with that. I mean, this is something that we battle with with misinfo dis- dis- studies too, which is that the conspiracy theorists are the last people to believe in an ordered universe. And it was like that. That's very interesting to me in the sense that, like, yeah, it's that's the grip to that. And it, it seems to me that memory. It's this what I what I love and I think is beautiful about nostalgia and the nostalgia studies uh, is that an ordered universe is also like a utopia. You know, it's kind of like there, it's the imaginist of that, you know, it's, it's a memory of non-existence. It you could remember an ordered universe, but it doesn't, it was never there, you know? And that, that's, that I think is like, I, I think this is a good ongoing discussion. And I, I really like having this and I like having the ability to discuss this because it helps us remember where we are as people within this like chaotic environment. and to And to also hopefully in coping, Understand that it is a chaotic environment that is always that that type of environment and and that's if you could get some sort of comfort in that acknowledgement, nostalgia does lose some of its power because it gives strength back to the person and and that would that's obviously a little anti corporate because corporations would rather us not get a grip on our own person they would rather us feel insecure to an amount where they could enjoy a past or an unremembered past of somebody else. Um, so that's I I do like your book again. Like I'm I'm really excited that that it's coming out, and I really uh, love the whole story. I want to ask you one more question about uh, a fandom, um, <laughs> Tanner Wave. What do you think of the meme discourse uh, that I think there's a lot of theory posting that goes on in Instagram? What how is how does Tanner Wave fit into this, and could you describe Tanner Wave a bit?
2: Tanner Wave is an Instagram account that posts um, like memes about uh not only my work but like um Foucault and um uh Mark Fisher. I don't know who this person is. <laughs> I uh I somehow got messaging them and uh and they seem very nice and and uh honestly, you know, I mean you know from from, from researching memes. I mean this is this is the way that that discourses uh, if not start and happen, sometimes end. Uh, but how they some this is kind of like the motor to some extent. And and um, I've been thinking a lot. I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I've been thinking a lot about um, not just memes, but uh, virality in general and um, moments of intensity with discourses where where things sort of um, uh, peak and then flatten. And that's just sort of like where we are. And I think that 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 economy that viral economy that social media is so good it really is what social media is founded upon um i think it messes with our memory in some way ultimately because it makes it very difficult um it's almost like taking discourses as like plastic and using them and then once they're used up they're thrown away and they're like ancient history like and it could be anything from like a meme like the the yodeling kid Do you remember this kid from like a few years ago you know and for a few moments it it was it was this moment of hype very intense very saturated and now it seems like ancient history and i just don't i you know when things happen there's they don't become ancient history for a while there needs to be a process in which we move from that thing but in a in a viral virulent kind of culture um I don't know, the appearance and disappearance is is almost like I use the plastic water bottle and I throw it away and that water bottle is gone and it's gone from my memory too. I don't know. That's just been on my mind. But yes, the Tanner Wave account, it's fascinating.
1: There is a fragility to digital media that doesn't exist in material histories. And I think in a further thought, this is an incomplete thought. but in a further thought, it helps us understand why we do like the material histories of of retro tech or vintage tech or anything, because it doesn't change, doesn't have an adaptation and it is sort of dead. And I think, like I said, this book evokes a lot of emotions in me, you know, <laughs> because I think a reader of this, of your book is, uh helps us get where we are connected to our past in physical spaces and gives us a, a, a certainty of where we once were and what we were attached to. So
2: thank you so much. Well, thank you. That, that is just, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled.
0: And Grafton, where can people find you and keep up to date with uh, the one book a year you're now putting out?
2: This is this will never happen again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm on all the terrible social media sites, uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Grafton Tanner, all the hellholes. Yeah, <laughs> we're there. We're all too. there. <laughs> we're all there. We are
0: Grafton. Thank you so much again.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Digital Void Podcast, and thanks to Grafton for taking the time to chat with us about The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, The Politics of Nostalgia. You can purchase the book now at your favorite indie bookstore or on bookshop.org. And remember to join us live, in person, or via livestream at Caveat NYC on Wednesday, October 27th for the Meme and the Moment Festival, Make It spooky. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.